Welcome to the Sunday morning service at Bible Baptist Church in Hampton, Georgia, where the Bible is opened and explained. Christians are encouraged and Christ is lifted up. Thank you for joining us and may your hearts be blessed as God's word is taught. And now, enjoy this message from Pastor Lauren Regeer. Amen. Thank you, Jason and Joel. Father, son, duet, wonderful truths there. And probably no greater or better fitting song to introduce the text this morning. Take your Bibles, please, and let's go to Matthew chapter 11. Matthew chapter 11, finding rest. Jehovah Shalom. He is our peace, finding rest in a restless world. Matthew eleven twenty-eight through 30. I don't know if, uh, in fact, there's probably a, a sister theme going on between Sunday school, the lesson where they're lead taught to us this morning from the Red Sea Rules, and this morning's lesson from Matthew 11, I guess it's the same author that wrote the whole book, right? Old Testament and New, and there's themes that just correlate all the way through cross-reference, and I'm glad that our God is Jehovah Shalom. Uh, Among many of His names, I'm thankful that He brings rest. I trust, I hope, that you know Him. To know Him means you're satisfied in Him. To know Him means that you have peace, not only in this life, but for all of eternity. I hope you know Christ as your Savior. Matthew chapter 11, uh, before we read the text, I want to ask you, are you this morning stressed out? That's a word we use, or a phrase we use frequently. How do you know if you're stressed out? Well, people have a hard time understanding you because you speak through clenched teeth. Number two, your dog is probably afraid of you. We opened a door somewhere on knocking on doors yesterday, inviting folks to our soccer camp. And Robin was with me, but she was uh, behind me. And she says, you go first. I hear dogs. And sure enough, three dogs came plummeting out the door, went right past us, thankfully. Uh, but Robin just kept walking farther and farther <laughs> behind me. Well, if your dog is afraid of you, you, you may be stressed out. You have to check your iPhone to see if you have time to eat lunch. Your family meetings have to be uh, mediated by security guards. You have Starbucks on speed dial or your phone favorites. Your family doctor wants you to switch to decaf. Maybe that's a hint. And then you look in the mirror and you see yourself coming and going. Here's one that's more serious. You can't think of one close friendship that you have. The Lord is saying to his people in that time as well as in our day, take my yoke upon you, learn of me. Let's read the verses. Come unto me, he says, Matthew 11 And verse 28, finding rest, come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Twice these words are used in a text before us. Take my yoke upon you. Interesting, the instrument of calm. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart. And ye shall find rest unto your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. No doubt we are living in a restless age. The news always stirs us up even more as we look at the international crisis of peace. There isn't any, it seems like. We look at this whole month dedicated to the perversion of homosexuality 
in our culture. Some preacher has said, and rightly so, that when a country uh, sinks to the level of moral moral degradation as ours has, it's the last and final straw before God turns his back and abandons us to a reprobate mind. America is fast-tracking in that direction. I don't know how much time we have left. All these things give rise to the fact that we are living in a restless day morally, of course, in terms of militarily. We are facing all kinds of crises around the world. The word rest in our text today comes from a Greek word. It means to anapaua, means to rest or cease from senseless activities, uh, to, set, to rest or cease from labors or senseless excesses in order to restore one's soul and recover one's strength. I don't know if I have told you the story about my last months in college, but I, I want to remind you about that. I think I have. I was very, very overwhelmed by life. I was in a, a play, a Shakespearean play called Much Ado About Nothing. That tells you how important that was. <laughs> but I had a, one of the leading roles in that book. The, the, the lines I had to memorize, the book was about that thick, and I was stressing over that. I was in a contest for preacher boys at Pensacola Christian, and so I was all stressed about that. And then at the last minute, they told me that I was going to be leading an ensemble, and I hadn't known that was coming, so I had to prepare my heart and messages for the summer. And then on top of that, Robin and I and it was really my fault Robin would say that. She would confer. But it was, so we broke up there the last couple weeks of college. I knew she was the right one for me, but all these stress factors in my life came to bear. And I simply, in my room, uh, there the last week of college, I just fell down in a heap and fainted. They dragged me to the infirmary. And that when I came to, they asked me, so what in the world is wrong with you, young man? I said, I don't know. I'm just, I think I'm going crazy. And they said, no, uh, we've diagnosed your condition. You are just crumbling under the load of your own stupidity. Thank you. for Good doctor, you know. Uh, you are just crumbling under the load of your own foolishness, trying to do too much and taking on too much. Someone said this, you ought to be stupid while you're young. At least you have a good excuse. I don't know, not picking on young people. But do you know God came to give you a sense of peace and calm in your heart? And that comes from a relationship with it. Maybe this morning, your life, even though it's summertime, right? And you have, perhaps if you have young children, more time, your schedule's more under your control, Yet you sense in your life a desperate need for calm. And you need this rest to cease from labors or senseless excesses in order that you might be restored in your soul. Rest is God's idea. Did you know that? Uh, It's God's idea. Genesis 2.2. On the seventh day of creation... The Bible says God rested from all His work which He had made. Why? Was He tired? No. Galatians, excuse me, Genesis 2 and verse 3, And God blessed the seventh day and set it apart for rest. How are you doing in the rest department in your life? He goes on to say, not that God was tired, of course, that He might teach us the absolute necessity of rest, the biblical priority of the essential need for your soul to rest. God made us 
uh, with a need. We are not machines. We're made with a need for calm, for rest. God wants us to slow down, not just one day a week, but there has to be a sense of calm and peace in our lives that we have periods of time where we step away from the, I hate to call it a rat race, because if you're in a rat race and you win, you're still a rat. But I, I step away from the schedule in order that there might be an upward focus, a calming of the heart. Physical rest is vital to our well-being. God knew that. And even prescribed a time in the Old Testament when the land could rest. Leviticus 25.4 says, During the seventh year, the land shall have a Sabbath rest, a Sabbath to the Lord. You shall not sow your field nor prune your vineyard. So they asked the Lord, what about that seventh year, the eighth year? What will we eat in the seventh year? And the Lord's answer was one of faith. Leviticus 25, 21, the Lord said, I will do something amazing. In the sixth year, I will command my blessings upon you. In the sixth year, and it shall bring forth fruit for not one, not two, but three years. So you will have enough for the sixth, the seventh, and the eighth year, simply if you obey God's principle to let the land rest. Your soul needs rest. The land needs rest. And God was trying to impress upon us an important principle that God is able, when we set aside our busy lives and inside our busy schedules, when we set aside time to focus in on the God who has everything in control, as the men sang, the God of peace, his name, Jehovah Shalom. Would you characterize your life right now as a peaceful, calm place? your heart. How serious was the Lord about this? The sacredness of the Sabbath day principle in the Old Testament. Well, this is what he says in Exodus 31, 14 through 17. He speaks to Moses from the mount. The seventh day, he says to Moses, is a solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any servile work on the seventh day shall be this was a capital offense, shall be what? Put to death. Better not pick up the shovel, <laughs> the wheelbarrow on the Sabbath. This is a special sign between Israel and God that in six days the earth was created and on the seventh he rested. Well, the question this morning is how do we find rest in our lives? And why does God demand a change of pace and perspective. I already mentioned he wants us to look up, to, to remember his grace and goodness. Now, as we look at Matthew chapter 11, I think it's important to point out the context here of the verses behind me on the screen. Let's read them again. Uh, verse 28, come unto me, all ye that labor. Well, that's everybody, isn't it? That, that wants to make a living, is that a bad thing? Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, burned in your heart, and I will give you rest. And now I want you to take my yoke upon you. But you'll find the burdens are different. Learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest to your souls, for my yoke is easy. My burden is light. We were so important this morning to get a little bit of the context of this, these three verses here in Matthew 11. What is happening is Jesus is setting forth the truth of his deity, his worthiness to be called rightly the known, rightly be called the Messiah. 
And so he's, uh, he's the one, and he's, he's establishing this by his word and by his wonders, his miracles, that he indeed is the Messiah, the promised one. We see in chapter 10, uh, there's this setting up of the idea that through his disciples, his miracles would be exponentially demonstrated during his ministry so that everybody, without mistake, who has an honest sense of evaluation would see this man is different from every other teacher prophet that we've ever seen. But when we see John the Baptist in his ministry to be the forerunner of Christ, even John had a doubt. We see chapter 11 beginning, and John says this, he's already in prison, and he's doubting the fact that maybe this is the one the Christ, the Messiah. <laughs> and John, he heard in prison the works of Christ he sent to of his own disciples. Art thou he, verse 3, that should come or should we look for another? And Jesus answered and said, go show John again these things which you do hear and see. He commends John for his powerful ministry. He's saying, John, don't be worried about it. Just look at my works. If, if my words do not convince you, look at my works. Nobody does what I do. And then verses 4 and 5 of 11, of course, he commends John for his powerful ministry of prophetic validation of Christ. That's what all prophets were called to do, to point to Christ. And what's so exciting about John the Baptist in this text, in this context, that he's the last prophet. All the prophets had pointed down the road or up the trail and said, the Messiah is coming and you will know him by these things. But when John the Baptist came, what did he do? He looked at John, he looked at Christ who had appeared standing at the door and he's no longer saying, these are the signs that will point to the one that shall come. But he pointed at Christ and said, there is the Lamb of God which taketh away the sin of... He's right here. In that sense, he was the greatest of all because his message pointed directly to the incarnation of Christ who stood in the very presence of the Israelites. It was John's favorable job to say, there he is. Imagine if Christ himself in person walked into our church this morning. Would you recognize him? John's calling was to turn the attention of his countrymen. There is the Christ. There he is. Don't miss the opportunity for internal peace and joy that you have longed for all these years. Well, Christ is here. That was his message. Then in Matthew eleven fifteen through 16, he says, uh, the Lord himself speaks. He says, well, we've sent the prophets and we have rejoiced. We've danced with you. <laughs> in a sense, he's saying, we've brought great tidings of good news to all people. And we've rejoiced and we have wept with you. We've sorrowed with you. And still there are ears that will not hear and eyes that will not see. Jesus is saying, I'm, I'm the one. You're deaf to the truth of who I am. And even as the chapter proceeds there in verses 22 and 23 and 24, it will be more tolerable. Here we are shamefully promoting pride for the month of June. But do you know that as uh, disgusting and abominable as that sin is, the Lord says it's going to be more tolerable. Listen now, it is going to be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah at the judgment than for you who have all these signs professed before your eyes. It makes us 
think differently about our personal sin of deafness, spiritual blindness, and negligence. And so that is the context, really, that comes uh, right before these verses. It's a country, it's a land of great privilege, like America, even more so because they had grown up with all the ordinances, all the signs, all the wonders, all the miracles, and some were deaf, and so he's looking at a country that is trying desperately to be religious by adding law and regulation and law and regulation, and they're frustrated because they're not getting any closer to God by all this morality and law-keeping. And so they are just tired and weary of searching and seeking for answers. And Christ says, you need to come to me. I want to share a few principles quickly this morning. The person of rest. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden. You see the wonderful principle. It's, it's not something that you need. It's not more religion. It's not more church, a different denomination. Rest is spiritual in its nature. The Bible clearly says in Psalm 23, God restoreth, what? My soul. The good shepherd has the ability, dear friend, to restore your soul. Maybe you're outside of Christ. You've never ever had a personal relation. That's where it starts. You come to Christ and the guilt of your sin is, is, is taken because of His sacrifice on the cross. And there's peace of God that comes because you have peace with God. It's not in something, not a pill or a program. It's not even a place. The Bible says, come unto me, the person of rest. Psalm 1611 says, in thy presence, God's presence is fullness of joy. Is that missing in your life today? Are you searching desperately still for the answer to life? For some, uh, some modicum of peace in your life? The Lord says, come to me. Come to me. Have your prayers been all about getting things from God and not just enjoying God? Come to me, my presence. In my presence is fullness of joy. Rest is found in a rich relationship with God. Maybe perhaps you have hitched your wagon. We alluded to this perhaps last week a little bit to all the wrong horses. The Lord is going to talk about a yoke here in a minute. But maybe your life, you've been yoked up to the wrong horses, so to speak, in terms of illustration, and the horses are all stampeding, and your life is speeding up, and you understand that there's a, an unrest in your soul. The culture we live in is driven by all the wrong horses, the dark horse of success. Maybe that's the horse that you have hitched your wagon to, and you are living your life to be successful, to get to the top of your field, to wear the power outfits, uh, your morning starts with a power espresso. You drive a German car, nothing wrong with that. But the more you have, the mantra is, the better you are. You deserve more. Fortune 500 exec writes this, Reaching the level of success that I have requires total commitment. If your family is too demanding, get a new family, he says. Get a bigger house, newer model car, and do it now. Your life is so short, get a hold, grab the gusto. 
the dark horse of success. Maybe the fast horse of technology is, is racing the wagon of your life. And you think the faster you go, the farther you're getting. And you're excited about the fast horse of technology. We, we have been surrounded, haven't we? By technological gadgets, TVs, computers, laptops, cell phones, video games. And they leave us connected in a way to the world's culture, but not so much connected to God. We have to have the latest. We're empty inside. We know what's happening in Hollywood and the capers that are going on between the famous and successful in Hollywood, but do we know God? Come unto me. And just as in their day, God was conveniently placing and positioning himself where everyone could come to him who wanted to come. Did you know you are as close to God as you want to be? Because he is not hiding from you. The fast horse of technology. Back in the day, some of you remember this. And even in the South to this day, houses are built with front porches. But grandma and grandpa actually used their front porch. They had a couple of rocking chairs out there. and They didn't have an Xbox, but they had, oh, some of them didn't even have ice, ice boxes, I guess. <clears throat> but I can remember at the end of the day, grandma and grandpa sitting on the front porch in the rocking chair. And I'd ask them, what are you doing? We said, we're just watching traffic go by. I said, well, okay. Well, sometimes when you'd sit with Grandma and Grandpa, they had the secret of slowing down a little bit. And they'd drink the iced tea with the lemonade, and they'd just talk. I miss that. Did you know God made you different from every animal, every created being, every bug or fly or lizard? You are, cre- you are created, not cremated, you are created with an appetite and a desire for worship. And you're going to worship something or someone. And God wants that someone to be Him. Come unto me. Some of you have hitched your wagon to the circus pony of pleasure. We fill our homes with more and more pleasurable things, we think. Uh, Video games, popcorn, little league, ball games, soccer, hockey, not bad things per se, but they can take over the calling in our hearts to come to Christ. They can. A proximity to God and intimacy with God. Dad, are are you tending that in your family as the family priest? Are you bringing your family together for devotions? Does your family even know how to get a hold of God because of your life? The devil whispered to Eve, you're missing out. If you just pick that fruit over there, wow. Your life will be pleasurable and fun and full and exciting. He's always selling me a ticket to the next fun thing. The question is, when am I and you going to get tired of running in circles and going faster and faster, chasing dreams that can never fulfill or satisfy? The songwriter says, my soul, remember this song hymn? My soul in sad exile was out on life's sea, so burdened by sin and distress, by laughter and excess. 
But I heard a sweet voice piercing through the madness saying, make me your choice. And that voice calls us over the tumult of the world's wild, restless sea. In Revelation, the cultures of the world are likened to a restless sea. And in the midst of that, there are Christians who understand the only hope for rest is in Christ. Come to me, he says, the relationship of intimacy, all you who are weary. Kopiao is Greek, exhausted from so much self Effort, weary from needless excesses. Come to me. This morning, the call, the invitation, the beckon from heaven is will you come to Christ? Will you? Or will you keep keep trying to find hope and peace your way? Are you exhausted from much self-effort? Weighted down under the weight of religion Maybe I'm speaking to a wife this morning. You've tried it all and there's no earthly affirmation. You think you're a failure, hopeless. Maybe a man who feels inadequate because he's not the salesman of the year that he thought he would be. And life for you is kind of discouraging. Christ is whispering to you, come to the person of rest. Moving on then, we're to find rest not just in a relationship, We're also to find rest in the partnership. It's interesting, isn't it, that God would employ this imagery for rest. Look at it there. Take my, verse 29, take my what? Take my yoke. Some of you old-time farmers uh, understand this principle. Take my yoke upon you. You see a picture of a yoke on the screen behind me. You know, um, that seems kind of strange when we think about you know, you, you might say, Lord, why didn't you say, take my, what? I'm thinking about rest here. Take my pillow. <laughs> he didn't have anywhere to lay his head, though, did he? So he may not have had a pillow. Take my, uh, what is it, uh, uh, you know, my sleep number bed. Take my, whatever. Take my sleeping bag with you. No. He says, take my Yoke upon. After mentioning it, it's the person of Christ. You need to come to me. He says, uh, "Take my yoke upon you." The partnership of rest. What he's asking you and I to do, if we want peace in our lives and peace in our hearts, we have to yoke ourselves to Him. It's a calming, peace-producing instrument. It's not a pill or a pillow. It's not a hammock. It's a wooden brace that locks your neck. side by side with God. How close are you to Him? It's a a context here in Christ, and they they all understand what yokes are, bringing either an oxen, a team of oxen, or horses together, a couple mules perhaps, donkeys, bound together by this wooden instrument that locks their necks in place. How in the world, how in the world... Spiritually speaking, does the yoke help you find rest? Well, let me give you some ideas. If this were a Sunday school class, we'd open it up for your discussion. What do you think a yoke does? Why would the Lord ever mention, come unto me, take my yoke, not, don't bring a yoke, (laughs) don't try to get me in your yoke, take my yoke upon you, this wooden instrument that really confines you, what does it do? Well, let's... Let's just give you some answers here. It, 
maximizes your potential because now you're pulling together with God instead of doing your own thing. It minimizes distractions. It's hard to jump over fences and chase butterflies and run down all these, uh, run in circles, scream and shout while you are in a yoke with God. So it minimizes distractions and forges cooperation. You're with God, and so you're starting your day by saying, Lord, I'm locked in. I've died, as as Paul said, I've died daily to my own dreams and ambitions, and I I, want to serve Christ. I want to go where you're going. How does that bring rest, dear friend, to your heart? You're going in so many directions, trying to figure it out where you're going to go, where you're going to do. And God says, why don't you just go my way? It lightens the burden by dividing the stress of pulling the weight. God now is in the battle with you, fighting for you instead of against you. Then, of course, it clarifies direction. You can't go in 15 directions when you're yoked with God. And so he says, come unto me. And by the way, I love the yoke of marriage. I think that's a great, maybe you're having a terrible time in your marriage and you're wondering why you've Fighting the yoke of marriage that binds you together, that clarifies your direction, that unifies, unifies your heart as a couple. This isn't a marriage seminar, but what a great picture that is of a sweet marriage. You're fighting the yoke. A Christian man sat down on a plane. He happened to sit down by an attractive single gal. He was married. And the girl was about his age, and she initiated a conversation. And at first, everything seemed pretty casual. And uh, he soon realized that what she really had in mind was to find a companion for the night. Going straight to the point, the Christian man said, I travel a lot. Here's a man that understood the yoke of marriage, Christian marriage. He said, I travel a lot. Many times I'm lonely. I often encounter temptations to be unfaithful to my wife, but I've decided it's not worth it. I made a covenant when I stood before the preacher and God, and I said, no one else for all of my life, unless death separates us. He said this, I've decided it's not worth it to be unfaithful. I know I could deceive her, but the basis of our relationship is our mutual love and confidence. She trusts me, and I trust her. I've lived long enough To realize that meaning in life is not found in seeing what I can get away with or in bigger achievements or in a position or how my leisure time is spent. I've learned that meaning is found in relationships. Consequently, I don't want to uh, destroy the best relationship I have on earth. If I came home having been unfaithful to my wife, even though she might not perceive it, even though I could hide it from her, I would know. She would come to me with her blind confidence and I'd somehow have to create distance between us. We'd be pulled apart and she would never know why. Soon we'd be strangers living together under the same roof. The ones that would pay the most heavily would be my wife and my children. That strikes me as the height of selfishness. (laughs) The lady was dumbfounded. She began to open up and she said, I'm 24 years old. I ought to be getting married, but all my married friends have affairs, and if that's the way it is, I don't want it. When my friends go away for the weekend, their husbands are knocking at my door. I just don't think I could handle it if my husband were like that. 
Then she added, I've never heard ideas like yours. Where do they come from? You'd laugh, he said, if I told you. No, I wouldn't, she said. I got them from the Bible. I've yoked myself to the person of Christ. I've committed myself to my wife. Here's a man that understood the yoke principle. It brings peace. When you live by conviction and by loyalty, it brings peace to your heart, to your home, and to your marriage. What a glorious thing the yoke is. Thirdly, I wanted to mention the posture of rest, verse 29. Another person of rest, the partnership you see here, take my yoke upon you, and the Bible says, learn of me, learn of me, for I'm meek and lowly in heart. This is the King of Kings speaking. And when you learn of me, the Bible says, then you will find, what does the Bible say? Verse 29, then you shall find rest to your soul. When you learn of me, get in the yoke, become, uh, develop the relationship that's so important through salvation, put your trust and faith in the person of Jesus Christ, draw near to him in fellowship, get in the yoke with him, and then Understand the the wonderful grace of humility that takes time to learn. But when you learn it, when you submit to God, in every principle, in every way, there is an attending rest that comes. I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow, do you? I don't know what's going to happen in Ukraine. I don't know what's going to happen to my health or yours. But I know one thing, I'm yoked up with God and everything's going to be okay. God has not vacated his office in heaven. He's looking carefully over the affairs of men. And and when we're that close to God and that close to his word and we're walking in lockstep with him, there is a peace that comes when we have the posture of humility, the posture of rest. You may be fighting the yoke. I hope you don't. I hope you come to the place where you are just trusting and resting in Him, the posture. And the Lord is speaking really to all of us here, not just married folks. He's speaking to all of us. Get properly connected, then learn of me. One thing that COVID-19 taught us as we had to take a vacation from live in, in home, or excuse me, in school learning, COVID taught us something that, that it's difficult. I mean, facts alone are a little bit stale and cold and and harsh, and most parents appreciated this too, that there's a place where when they they don't have a teacher to lead them and a teacher to learn from, not just the facts, but to see, here it is, truth expressed and incarnated is the word in living flesh. The Lord says, you come to me, you come to me and begin your learning process. I will teach you the facts about who I am. And yes, like Peter would declare, you are truly, indeed, Christ, the Son of God. But Peter had to see how the Lord reacted and moved and thought and responded to people, to everything from beggars to kings and judges and and, and hierarchy. The Lord was asking people, if you want to find rest, you come to me. Not some place or not Florida necessarily. You come to me. It's okay to go there. But come to me. And then I want you to walk so closely with me that you learn how I walk. And you learn how I speak. And I learn how I respond to others. 
And then, then you'll be close enough to understand the true disciplines of sanctification from which these wonderful truths come. The disciple John would later write, For the life of Christ, 1 John 1, was manifested and we have seen it and bear witness to it. That the life, here it is, that he came to bear witness and show to us eternal life, which was with the Father and has been, here's the key, manifested to us. Have you ever said to your wife or perhaps your spouse or your uh, children, I, I would like to do that, but it just, it's not something God would do. I know because I've been walking with him. I'd like to go there. I'd like to listen to that. I'd like to watch that, but it's just not something God would do. I've been walking with him long enough to know him. He said, we've seen that which we have seen and heard declare we unto you. And what did this learning by living with Christ teach John? 1 John 1, 5. Here's what, it say, here's what he says. This is what we've learned and declare to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. He has to be God because in him is no darkness. Romans 5, 8, but God commendeth. You know what that word means? God commendeth. God commendeth. Anybody know what that King James word means? But God commendeth. I hear it whispered. But God demonstrated His love for us in that while I was still a sinner, Christ went down that rugged old road to the rugged cross and there on that rugged cross He spread His arms out and He died in my place. And I saw that, John said. I, I was there. So, I know he's God. I know he's real. I know this is the one. I walked with him, talked with him. My hands touched. My heart was thrilled with who he was. This is God. And I know it. And so I'm not going to be shaken from the confidence that I have. I'm going to walk my life convicted that this is God. And this is my message. We declare unto you that this is God in Him. No darkness, no shadow of turning. And I know it. I've been in the yoke with Him. And even though He slay me, yet will I trust Him and serve Him. Last principle we just touch on is this. My promise. Come to me, the person of rest. Take my yoke, the partnership of rest. Learn of me, the posture of rest. The promise, it's there, isn't it? It's right there in the text. And you will find there's a peace in your soul. Take uh, verse 30. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. When it's mine, I carry it. You cast your burden upon me. It's not that God takes away our burdens, but he carries them because they're given to us by him. Thank you for joining us today. Please tune in each week for new messages from Bible Baptist Church in Hampton, Georgia. Until next time, may the Lord bless you and keep you and make his face to shine upon you.